Hello and welcome to Unsupervised Thinking, a podcast on neuroscience, artificial intelligence, and science more broadly. We are a group of neuroscientists. I'm Grace. I'm Josh. I'm Nancy. And you may recognize Nancy's voice from past episodes, uh, for example, ones on neural oscillations and social neuroscience research, and she is back with us again. Um, so this is a slightly uh, non-average episode. We don't have a scientific topic that we're talking about. We didn't read anything to prepare for it, um, but we're kind of going to talk more about the process of doing science and um, our experiences as scientists, particularly around the topic of kind of how we choose how to consume science. You know, when you're in a field, it's important that you keep up with the literature and you know what other research is being done. Um, but there's a lot of that. So there's a lot of different ways to kind of decide how you keep up with that. And in particular, we're kind of interested with the idea of what happens when scientists take in information from a little bit beyond what they're used to, uh, learning about things outside of their own research area. And this kind of stemmed from, basically, we decided that we wanted to try to do something at COSINE, which is a conference that um, brings together computational and experimental neuroscientists. And we kind of wanted to ask people something at COSINE. We wanted to interview the attendees at COSINE. And I guess uh, Josh and Connor and I had an email exchange about what we should ask people. And at first, we were going to focus on the experimental theory divide that happens there, maybe try to get people, you know, if you're an experimentalist to talk about something that interests you in theory or some questions that you would have for theorists and vice versa. But then I guess we didn't want to be so like divisive. Or <laughs> I yeah, know. I mean, so the, there's a sort of strange cultural divide where, and I think this is true in many different fields, not just neuroscience, um, and in many different sort of related kinds of contexts where like, there are people whose skill set and, and focus is more towards collecting data. And there are people who are who have more of a background in like physics and math and statistics who have skills that are less along the lines of gathering data and more for analyzing data and sort of doing things with computers to build models. And frequently those people might have done very different undergraduate degrees. Or even PhDs if they came yeah. to neuroscience later. And so I guess there are you know, maybe like there are like stereotypes that each group has about the other group. I mean, you would say this is true, Nancy, right? Like, Yeah, I, I guess I remember in grad school thinking that for sure there were more men uh, in the theory side of of this divide, experimental and theorists. Yeah, that's probably true. And also, I agree with you that they tend to come from more math backgrounds. And a lot of people from physics that get interested in the brain. Um, and it is true that if you're on the experimentalist side, you're more likely coming from biology at, or a neuroscience undergrad degree, like uh, what Grace um, alluded to. I'm not sure what stereotypes you were thinking. No, I mean, yeah, I, I just just also like that maybe people have different feelings about it. Different people are more or less inclined to collaborate across these kinds of groups. Like some some people who collect data don't really like sharing their data with theory computational people. Sometimes there are theory computational people who do not really stay very close to data. So like people like people on both sides have like sort of how much are they interested in collaborating with people across the divide? Yeah, and how much value do they think certain people bring to neuroscience as a whole? Um, 
Yeah, there are. I mean, so it's the people who go to COSINE. So this is the it's an acronym for computational and systems neuroscience. And so this is a crowd that obviously enjoys the connection between experiment Mm -hmm. and theory. Um, So there wouldn't be like the extremes, you know, like experimentalists who think that like computational people are garbage or anything like that. They're not going to go to COSINE. Yeah. Um, I do agree that there's definitely like uh, you know you can f- you can fit data you can f- make a model do anything that I've I've heard those comments uh, for sure it's like <laughs> yeah. the model is gonna do what you tell it to do so I've, uh, I I f- I forgot what type of background the person had but I remember it was a s- senior person saying this so there's I've heard that I've I've definitely heard that but I think likely like people. At least the circles of people I've been with, there's no downside of collaborating and giving your data. Um, as long as you, it's not that, because it seems like from the same data, you could have two papers with, you know, one is experimental, as perspective. You know, so it's like, what are you losing? You're not really losing anything. <laughs> yes, there are many practical reasons to collaborate in addition to, I was going to say spiritual, but like, <laughs> like pure you know, scientific <laughs> reasons for collaboration. That's true. <laughs> um, but so ultimately, we decided to not kind of foster these divisions or force people to, you know, proclaim that they're on one side and try to speak to the other side or anything like that. So the way that we framed the question was just tell us about a finding or a method that is outside of your own immediate research area that you think is exciting. So that allowed people to self-define what their research area was and how far outside of it counted as outside. Um, and so it didn't it didn't force people into any categories, which was good. In collecting these interviews, um, it wasn't like super easy to get a lot of people to participate. I think part of that is just because people aren't like super eager to have themselves recorded by a random girl who walks up to them at a conference and asks if they want to be on a podcast so um but also I think people kind of it's a it's a hard question to ask because it's almost like asking like a negative like tell me something that's not what you do and so it's hard for people to search in their mind you know for for that kind of thing yeah um so it was interesting to try to get people to do that and there were a lot of people who said like well let me think on it and I'll get back to you and then they did and they had really good answers and stuff but I think there's there's something interesting about that the idea that trying to to think of what what is cool that is happening outside of your own immediate research area is is challenging at times because you don't store that information as much. Even at a conference like Cosine, which is um, a small conference and everyone's in the same room together for the talks and stuff, you're seeing a lot of uh, information that is outside of your own field. But what you do with that information can vary dramatically. Like I know when I listen to talks, sometimes I'm like really actively like thinking, oh, how does this relate to my work? Or how does this relate to this other idea that I've mm-hmm. been thinking about? And then other times I'm just kind of like letting it wash over me. And if something really interesting sticks out, then maybe like I'll, I'll lodge that in my memory. But other times, you know, it just happens and then it's gone. Yeah, I, most of the time I try to think about how the talk relates to my work. Um, and it also depends on the, whatever stage you are. Like I remember when I was finishing my PhD and thinking of what to do next, I was purposely like really stepping out of my comfort zone and reading a lot of relatively random things to f- see what caught my attention. But right now that I'm 
uh, one year and a little bit over a year into my postdoc, I'm just trying to focus. So it's like if a seminar is not exactly on something very relevant, I might not go. It's like, no, I have to be like collecting data. So it's shifting, you know, it depends on the stage that I am in how I utilize the information that's not relevant. Yeah, yeah. and I think, so in, in the interviews, we have some from PhD students and postdocs and professors. And um, I don't know, it could be interesting to think about how maybe different stages of career means that, you know, people have different, I don't know, it's, it's possible to me that as a professor, you have the kind of most room to really look beyond uh, what you do, um, especially if you're tenured, you know, you can be kind of making reaches. For and, sure, yeah. yeah. And you can, you know, like, look for an idea and then kind of request that a, a student or postdoc of yours goes more in depth and then, you know, they're going to be focused on that one small area, but you can be looking broadly. Um, so, yeah, so I guess right now we will play those interviews. There's 11 interviews and they're a couple minutes each um, to let people know about the kinds of ideas that, that people have uh, been talking about in these interviews. And so basically what it is, is each person that I interviewed, I just asked them to give their name and describe their position in their own work briefly, and then uh, give a description of something that they found interesting beyond their own work. And a lot of people chose to reference stuff that they had seen at Cosine, uh, which obviously makes a lot of sense, but that wasn't a requirement. So some people are just bringing up random other things that they've seen that they think are cool. Um, so we will listen to those. And uh, they have a nice little conference murmur in the background that I kind of like really authenticates it, proves that I was there. <laughs> <laughs> it's an aesthetically pleasing background sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so enjoy. Uh, hi, my name is Jan Sweeney. I'm a postdoc in Claudia Klopath's group. I study synaptic plasticity in neural networks. And what I think is cool is um, the sort of transition from very constrained tasks in like lab environments towards like looking at actual natural animal behavior um, it looks like social neuroscience is kind of becoming cool and I think uh, basically letting you know rats and bats and all these kind of things just fly around as we track them and look at what they do can tell us loads about actual behavior and I'm looking forward to it so I'm Brayden Brinkman, a new assistant professor at Stony Brook University in New York on Long Island. Um, so my research kind of covers um, efficient coding and sensory systems and collective behavior of neural networks and trying to figure out how the, the network structure uh, gets translated into function. Uh, one of the things that I thought was really interesting and what I want to think about a little bit more is a point that got brought up in Ian Cousins lecture last night where he was talking about how in social organisms you might be able to offload computation from the individual's nervous systems to some sort of social computation and I was kind of interested in thinking about how yeah thinking about how the sort of evolutionary aspect of social behavior might put constraints or, or ease constraints on neural architecture so that the the actual neural circuits you might be able to get away with them being a little bit simpler um, at, in order and then having that sort of computation done at a, a social population level and one of the reasons I think that is interesting is that I think a cool place for neuroscience to go computational neuroscience to go would be trying to think about 
evolution of networks and coding strategies. Like for example, in the efficient coding literature, we're always we're always trying to find some optimal coding strategy, and a, a frequent criticism that gets brought up is like, well, what if an organism doesn't need to be optimal, it just needs to be good enough? And so I've always wanted to think a little bit about, well, could we actually develop a model, you know, an evolutionary model for like a sensory circuit and sort of and look at the distribution of coding strategies that come out instead of trying to hone in on a on a, the optimal coding strategy, scare quotes that you can't see because it's an audio recording. Um, and so I think the, the connection that, that Ian Cousin brought up with thinking about you know, how, how social dynamics might influence neural architecture sort of in a similar vein and, and something that I thought was really cool and want to th sit and think about a little bit more. I, I'm Ben Lansdell. I'm a postdoc at the University of Pennsylvania. I work with uh, Conrad Cording and so I'm interested in causal inference and reinforcement learning and how those two things can kind of benefit from interacting. And at this conference I'm also interested in models of hippocampal replay. Um, so it's, uh, it can be used for, for planning. So it's like if you navigate a maze you might see kind of activations at some later point that kind of mimic traversing that maze. And so there's evidence that, that can be used for, for kind of planning. So my name is Adrian Radillo. I'm a fourth year PhD student at the University of Houston. And uh, so I am in the math department. And um, so right now I'm studying um, mathematical models for uh, decision making in changing environments and um, especially applied to rats. A topic that's a bit outside of what I'm doing, but that really interested me today was um, the new software uh, called uh, SecNMF that were present was presented by one of the speakers today. And um, so it's a software, apparently, it's an algorithm that allows to um, uh, find sequences, find hidden patterns in neural activity. So if you're given a... Uh, a large amount of uh, of trials with uh, the activity of uh, of the neuron over each trial. I mean, I didn't understand everything in the, in the talk, but apparently the software allows you to unscramble data that seems to be scrambled at at first sight. So I think that's it's impressive that we can use machines to do this type of work. So yeah, I'm excited about it. Hi there. <laughs> this is Joanna Soldado Magraner. Uh, I work at the GASB unit, um, UCL, and I'm a theoretical neuroscientist, uh, and I work with uh, electrophysiological data from monkeys that are trying to perform uh, decision-making tasks. And I have to say, I was really surprised by uh, one of the keynote, uh, keynote uh, invited uh, talks given by Professor uh, Cousin. Um, that's at Constant in a Max Planck Institute for, I think, uh, ornithology. <laughs> that was quite fascinating. It was like quite, quite a, like a new uh, and fresh thing to see in, at Cosine because it's not really directly related to the work that I think any of us are uh, doing here. So yeah, modeling complex systems uh, in general is like, uh, I find it really fascinating because probably, yeah, we they use probably very similar tools that we use, but the um, subject of study is uh, also behavior, but in a very uh, different setting from 
uh, what we're used to uh, model. So it's not focusing on the individual, but focusing on like a collective uh, um, individuals. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I think that was really cool, really, really like uh, out of the box. <laughs> Hi. So I'm uh, Zach Kilpatrick. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Applied Mathematics at University of Colorado Boulder. Um, my research focuses on working memory, decision making, spatiotemporal dynamics of large-scale neural systems, and I'm interested in uh, methods for analyzing stochastic processes in neuroscience. And recently, I've gotten interested in collective behavior of groups of organisms, so how organisms make decisions of where to move, where to forage, and how to self-organize. And uh, one of my collaborators, Ort Peleg, at uh, the University of Colorado, has been working on some projects on honeybees. So honeybees form swarms and they form tighter swarms when it's cold in order to maintain uh, high temperature. And uh, one of the studies that she uh, has been doing looked at the effect of mechanical forcing on honeybees uh, in swarms. So if you shake the swarm back and forth, the swarm will flatten itself out against the branch that it's on. and by studying the uh, mechanical modes of the honeybee swarm, they were able to find that what this does for the honeybees is to uh, reduce the pendular motion and sort of the pendular forces uh, applied to the honeybee swarm. So I think this is fascinating because you have um, the individual behavior of honeybees is locally sensing the, the forces in the environment and the result is that the swarm as a whole uh, solves a problem of becoming more stable. So that's a really cool finding. Thanks for your time. Hi, my name is Bill Podlaski and I'm a PhD student at the University of Oxford. And my main research interest is in uh, network dynamics. Uh, one area of research in neuroscience that I think is very exciting these days is in developing new technologies to record from many neurons in the cortex and other brain areas. Um, researchers at UCL and other institutions have recently developed this new probe called NeuroPixel, which has a thousand recording sites and can record from many thousands of neurons at the same time, which is probably around an order of magnitude more than the current state of the art. This is really exciting because the more neurons we can record from, the better idea that we have of what individual neural circuits are doing and how they interact with other brain areas, which is really cool. Hi, I'm Carson Stringer. I'm a postdoc at Genelia Research Campus, and um, Cosine has been fun this year. Uh, I saw a cool poster about um, hunger modulation in cortex, and specifically in higher order visual areas, there's hunger dependent cells and I thought that was pretty sweet. Hey, I'm Julia Shartov. I'm a PhD student at Boston University and I work with Nancy Capel. And my thesis work is on understanding the mechanisms that bridge cellular properties with network behavior, specifically looking at fast-spiking interneurons in the striatum and modeling their generation of oscillations. 
So, yeah, so the question was something that's not related to my research, right, but, it's not, but I saw it at Cosine, it was really cool. Okay, so I would say probably Ann Kennedy's work on um, representation of sex in the hypothalamus was really interesting to me just because I the study of sexual behavior is something that's really interesting and does not interact with the computational neuroscience world that much. And it's something that is of massive public interest, especially if you can get experiments that can demonstrate in humans the same thing, similar things that you're finding in animals. I think it would answer a lot of questions that people have about the nature of our understanding of human sex and human sexual biology. So I thought that was really cool. Hi, I'm Adam Calhoun. I'm a postdoc at Princeton University, and I work on uh, natural behaviors and courtship and uh, statistical methods to analyze behavior. So one talk that I saw at Cosan that I thought was really interesting was by Tiago Branco. Uh, he's investigating escape behaviors in mice, uh, and he found uh, two sets of neurons or two anatomical regions in the brain where the first region integrates evidence about how nervous animal is or how willing it is to escape. Uh, and there's this really interesting recurrent population code uh, that allows the animal to, to slowly accumulate information. And this information is thresholded at the next synapse that allows the animal to uh, make this escape or not escape decision. And this really nice dissection of a somewhat uh, complicated and very natural behavior. And I found that uh, very beautiful. Kristen Delovich, postdoc in Linda Wilbrecht's lab at UC Berkeley, and my research is on um, circuit mechanisms of reward-based learning in, in mice. And um, the research that I was really interested in was this paper that was looking at um, conditioned hallucinations, auditory hallucinations, in human populations that either had um, experienced daily auditory hallucinations or didn't have any experience of hallucinations, even though they could be psychotic. Um, so I thought the task was really cool because what they did is they paired a visual stimulus with a one kilohertz tone that came after it. And they paired it with uh, varying intensities of the sound. So they figured out the psychometric curves for each person. And so they found what that kind of detection threshold was. And so pairing it consistently with this just detectable um, sound they could then go below threshold or not play the tone at all. And people would experience, even normal healthy people would experience these conditioned auditory hallucinations. But they did find that people who actually experienced auditory hallucinations in their daily life were much more susceptible to this influence. And um, it was interesting that they then applied this model to kind of capture um, their auditory processing and they found that people who had hallucinations um, much more strongly weighted um, the prior expectation based on the visual cue to determine whether they detected something. And I thought it was cool because they had this population of people who, who lived with these voices. Maybe they thought they communicated <laughs> with ghosts or they were um, mediums or whatever, um, but they found the same um, influence of the model and similar neural signatures. So that was also cool that people who were having these hallucinations, um, the activation in the auditory cortex looked almost um, identical to when they had um, the tone played. So I just thought it was really interesting probing this um, 
kind of really abstract, personal, experiential sort of thing um, in a controlled manner. Okay, so that's what people at Cosign had to say. Do we have any immediate reactions? Um, well, it's interesting that I wasn't at Cosign, so I don't know how good his talk was or if it was like a, you know, like a main presidential quote-unquote lecture. Uh, Ian Cousine's talk, a lot of people mentioned that work being inspiring. So yeah, I saw that talk, and it was a really nice talk. Um, he does this research on collective behavior of groups of animals, and it was pretty cool because obviously people in the neuroscience community are interested in animal behavior. You know, a lot of people are trying to explain the behavior of animals via the brain. Um, but then the like especially cool thing was that the way they analyze, you know, like a bunch of different birds or fish or something is kind of similar to the way that we analyze a bunch of neurons acting together. So it was like working on two levels. And definitely a lot of people were talking about that talk. Um, after the fact. Also, he's just like a really good communicator. So <laughs> if you give a good talk uh, and make it interesting and have cool videos and stuff, like it's going to land with people. Uh, he came to MIT last year. I can't remember the details except that he was studying fish or like it wasn't just fish. There were like m multiple collective, but it, it was a great talk. It, it was quite inspiring, even though it, you know, he wasn't studying the brain per se. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that that's something that's interesting because conferences do sometimes have these special uh, slots that they offer to people who are outside of the normal range of speakers and attendees. Um, and so like Cosine does this, I think this is called the Gatsby Lecture, that's what he uh, spoke at. Um, and it is pretty cool and it's kind of interesting to me to see maybe like how far outside you can push it and still have it be this kind of electric thing where people recognize that it's not exactly what they do and so they're excited by that but they also see the parallels to what they do it's like this fine balance of getting something that's outside of the normal realm but still relevant enough or at least still analogous enough to to really be interesting so there's a, there's another conference called nips or neural information processing systems which is a machine learning conference and they also do something similar where they where they at least occasionally um or for certain kinds of uh, settings invite guests who are doing non-standard things or sort of interesting applications that maybe most of the people are are less familiar with. Um, uh, they've had people who are, for example, like neuroscientists talk about their neuroscience research. That shouldn't be outside. Yeah, but it is outside because it's like a machine learning conference. <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, I, there's a, a, I think people are conflicted about how much neuroscience should happen at, at a, NIPS. NIPS. Yeah, NIPS, this yeah. is a historical debate. Yes. But okay, so they invite neuroscientists. They have invited neuroscientists. This, this, this past year, uh, they also, I mean, this is kind of machine learning, but they, they were inviting a person working on... Uh, like stabilizing nuclear fusion using uh, algorithms. So, I mean, there are times when you can learn about... Uh, conferences tend to have these kinds of stretch uh, talks, which are maybe certainly outside of what most of the people there regularly think about. Maybe it's a little bit higher level or like feels a little bit higher level. Um, so like a, a neuroscience talk at a machine learning conference might feel inspirational to people who are like, oh, we like got to reverse engineer the brain. The brain yeah, is doing cool yeah. stuff. Or, or like, it, you know, it, 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 it gives you ideas that are, are not exactly things that you would think about normally. And they might feel like they, they touch on questions that are relevant. So like 
in, in the case of a talk that's about an application like nuclear fusion or something like this, uh, you know, it might feel like, uh, oh, well, this is like a really important problem that the field that, you know, we're all here because we're in uh, can actually have something to say about. Or like in, in the case of neuroscientists, you know, neuroscience at, at like this case at Cosine, right? It, it makes sense to me that neuroscientists are interested in social behavior or ethical dilemmas or things mm -hmm. like this. And so the kind of stretch, like neuroscientists most of the time are thinking in their day to day about like, you know, how does this very specific circuit work in a specific organism usually? And so the kind of high level talks that will, will, will resonate and be inspirational with neuroscientists would be like, what is the social relevance of learning about individual animals and how they work? And so, you know, in an engineering field, it would make sense that sort of stretch applications um, become the, the talks. Another conference that I'd recently been to for the first time was SIGGRAPH, which is on computer graphics. It's basically like the, the standard computer animation and computer graphics conference. And that's quite large conference, like, you know, many thousands of people. And I was going because there's a sort of a, a, a very clear overlap with a certain niche that's there. So like, you know, a smallish number of people, like 100 people there were, were doing something that was very relevant to my research. But while I was there, I, I learned about things that were quite far afield from things that I generally encountered in my research. And a lot of it is inspirational and uh, allows you like appreciation for a greater contextualization of your research. I mean, it, like it, it should almost be the case, obviously, that by the time you are doing a PhD in something, it's because you, you have as, a, as background knowledge for that a broader survey of many fields of science, which most people did get as undergrads or, you know, it's, it's not it's, it's not that I like, of course, I, I still keep up by like, you know, following what's going on in the mainstream kind of popular science press or whatever. But it, 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 it it's in some cases never been the case that you've heard high end academic lectures on other fields. That's true. In addition to that, um, my ability to appreciate other fields has gone up since going in depth in a field. I yeah. think once you do a PhD in something, you're like, oh, shit, the world is complicated. And every small thing <laughs> that people figure out is it was probably amazing that they figured it out. And so I can see uh, in other fields, like I can come to appreciate the complexity and the, the challenge that it was in a way that when you're outside of it all, you're probably like, oh, whatever. They like found a molecule that did whatever, whatever. But you know, <laughs> if, you, if you come to appreciate how difficult science is, then um, it can make learning about things outside your field pretty fun and amazing. Maybe especially if it's if it's a closely related field, right? Because in a closely related field, it's like, oh, the methods they're using are like vaguely familiar, but like their goals are not exactly the kinds of goals that, that we have mm -hmm. in our field. Like I can, you can appreciate like, I mean, for, for my purposes, like, you know, the difference between doing sort of machine learning kind of research versus trying to develop things that are like useful for movies or video games, right? Like I'm not interested directly i mean i'm interested in like the general social sense like but i'm not interested directly in like things that work well for movies or like for animation for movies or computer graphics for movies but at the same time like you know something something that i saw at SIGGRAPH that's very far outside like my my world would be like you know how people who do the computer graphics for game of thrones use physics-based simulators to like destroy boats and things like this. So, wow. so like, what, what do they do? Like, you know, there's a there's a big, you know, battle scene in Game of Thrones, which I've watched. And there's a bunch of, like, you know, wooden boats, like, 
you know, in some sort of fight and dragons breathe fire on boats. And like, that's all cool. And you watch it and you think like, oh, that's awesome. I mean, but at the same time, like I hadn't really appreciated or understood how one would go about doing that. And it turns out like the way they do this is have physics engines where they simulate wooden boats and then they like smash them with forces and they have like particle simulations where like the wood shatters in a physically plausible way. And then they take that and they have like animators go and and like paint over what has been done by the physics engine essentially like using their animation software like but by hand basically like to make it look cool to make it look pretty. even cooler than the like so they've got this like physics simulation at the at the base of this but then they like draw over it to make it like a like a prettier animation than just like the you know mediocre renderer of the physics engine gives so like i didn't even really appreciate how that all worked but coming at it from like knowing much more science now and doing things that involve physics-based simulation like it was an interesting oh they're doing things that in some ways like i kind of know how some of that works in quite a bit of detail and now i can kind of by using it for something totally using it for different something totally different exactly and it's like oh that's like that, that's not only fascinating, it's also like weirdly informs how I think about the context for the work that I do, like relative to the context for other people's work. It, it kind of gives you like a, a slightly broader picture and tells you who your neighbors are in some sort of weird intellectual space. Yeah, that's true. They're your neighbors with different goals, but you know, they have expert, I guess the expertise might be relevant. I never realized that explosions, you know, simulating explosions was so hard. Well, I mean, yeah. Artistic and scientific it, at the it, same it time. It was. It was interesting. I mean, SIGGRAPH was particularly weird for me because, like, I don't do anything that I think of as related to art. Um, and at the same time, it's like, yeah, there's actually a strange amount of overlap that many people recognize. I mean, this is, this is just me having not appreciated this between, like, doing physics and art. I mean, it's, you know, kind of more in, like, the Leonardo da Vinci camp or something like that, right? Whereas I do more on like the sort of data analysis side of things most of the time um, and machine learning intersecting with data analysis, which feels maybe quite different. I think that hits on something that I felt kind of came up in some of the interviews as well, which is the idea that people get excited, like other scientists will get excited about somewhat closely related science in the same way that people who aren't scientists will get excited about it. Like the notion that neuroscience that relates to the understanding of human behavior or uh, human disease or something like that. Like uh, some of the interviews referenced uh, the study of the sex of someone else, um, how the brain represents that information or about delusions. Um, and I feel like those are things that are just kind of generally interesting to the broad public. And it's also the case that other scientists will find that work interesting, probably, you know, in a more informed way. And they may have more ideas about what it means about the brain and all of that. But I think it reflects that, you know, uh, that we're human. <laughs> no, like we should definitely all be interested in like the science of sex, the science of like, I don't know, things that we all do, like food consumption, nutrition mm -hmm. science, I'm sure insofar as it's done well, interests most scientists as well as like the general population. Yeah, and I feel like it's, um, for me, it kind of reminds you of why you got into a field maybe, or, you know, it, it just helps keep the excitement up. Um, if you see other people kind of be excited on that level about your work, or you attend a conference and see that kind of work being done, and you feel like you're part of that community and everything. I don't know, I think it's helpful uh, even in that way, even if it's not so much about like, 
the the pure rigor of the science it's just about the topic is intrinsically interesting to humans yeah i i get excited about topics uh that are intrinsically interesting as well and i agree that you know it's like kind of like brings you back to like oh why you got interested in the brain to begin with so so have you heard of any have you heard any kind of topics outside your field lately that particularly excited you nancy let me think about this well i this wasn't so lately, this wasn't so recent, but a couple of years ago, maybe this was last year at SFN, I went, this was like a new thing that I was trying. I'm like, I'm going to just go to a random symposium that I wouldn't I attend. I like that. Attend, th- this was, that was, SFN has too many things. SFN is the biggest neuroscience conference. Uh, so it's the Society for Neuroscience world. Conference. So. The Society for Neuroscience, yeah. And like how many people show up for context? It's like 30,000. 30,000 people. Yeah. There's 30,000 people. So it's huge and it's pretty overwhelming. And um, I decided to just go to a random symposium and there was one on on brain-gut connection. Oh. And and I just went and it was fascinating. There was actually a talk about uh, how the the microbiome on the gut affected anxiety like behavior which at the time that was really relevant to my work and it just blew my mind it didn't change anything about my experiments but then i just had this higher level of what well, this is crazy you know the periphery matters a lot and it actually uh, it, it, it almost sounds kind of kind of like holistic type of research is like what you eat you know affects your mood and whatnot so that that was probably the most mind-blowing random symposium that made me aware that this world existed and um, the other exciting i didn't know this existed was um, and i think i talked about this in the social neuroscience episode this whole literature of of mostly people that study human social interactions they record both uh, brains simultaneously and there's these cross-brain dynamics happening and regardless of why they are happening it was kind of like crazy to see that they there's a whole field and there's so you know there's a big literature of papers that report this phenomenon yeah so this is um, cool i mean i think you're getting at another kind of related point like this is like a, like kind of another meta point which is like it's just useful to see what other fields exist even like where is it that yes. like because it, I, it is the definitely the case right that when you pick a field like there's no way anytime you pick a problem you're going to work on and this is true when you do an undergraduate major and it's true when you pick a phd and it's true when you pick specific research problems it's not like you're making an informed choice based on uh selecting amongst like a set of fields and you know every one of them you don't you haven't been given like a like a buffet of like here are all of the possible things clearly defined yeah it's just and- you stumbled into stuff based on who's around you and because there are people like whatever school you're at will not have people doing every kind of research Mm -hmm. um and so part of this is like what what even other fields exist and i guess another layer to this is generally most people do not get to go to conferences outside of their field ever because it's expensive that's true and so when you go to conferences that are inside of your field, but like a little, a little adjacent and diverse and diverse, yeah. you get to see more than you would see generally. Um, and you just start it, it broadens your awareness of like at a detailed level what really exists um, in terms of other research. 
Yeah, and I want to actually kind of bring up a, a potential paradox um, with this kind of thing, which is, so Nancy brought up SFN, which is this huge conference, and it has a bunch of different sessions going on in parallel about very like particular topics. And so usually you kind of have to choose, like, okay, I'm going to go to this uh, set of talks, and I'm going to go to this other room, and I'm going to see you know these three posters out of the thousands that are possible. And you can actually go to this giant, diverse conference and have a really like narrow experience where you only see things that are directly related to stuff you already know. Um, and that's how some people uh, do it. I actually, so SFN was the first conference that I ever went to, and I went as an undergrad, um, my last year of undergrad. And it actually is a big part of the reason why I didn't apply to PhD programs straight out of undergrad. I took a gap year because <laughs> I was completely overwhelmed. And I thought, like, I had entered undergrad thinking, like, I want to do a PhD in neuroscience, and I majored in neuroscience. And then at the end of my senior year, I was like, oh, shit, like, I don't know what school I want to apply to. I don't know what topic I want to study. And this conference has not helped. <laughs> like, now I feel like there's so much that I don't even know. And how could I possibly, like, get my head around this field enough to, like, do a PhD in it? And it was, like, so overwhelming that I applied to, to research internships for a year to, you know, sort out my thoughts. Um, <laughs> so there's like a paradox in that the, the amount of diversity could actually be overwhelming and kind of shut you down, at least when you're like a young person trying to, to think about stuff, or also you can just ignore it all if it's like very big and diverse and which have I think a very the, narrow experience, which may be a good coping mechanism, but I didn't know to do that. It also does time. seem like the coping mechanism that most conventionally successful people opt for, right? I, I, many people who are successful within fields... Uh, I think kind of shut out most of the diversity. They well, just kind of focus on, they focus their attention and, and thoughts and consumption of research on the niche in which yeah. they are like most active. I think that that's true generally, but also particularly at conferences. I think like, you know, the professors, I'm going to guess, go to the least amount of talks at a conference. Like they're there to, to talk to other people that they know and network and that kind of thing. But I feel like the more conferences you've gone to, the less like pressure you feel to take in everything that the conference has because you've learned that that's not helpful for you. So even in a, a conference like Cosine, which is small, there's only it's a single track conference, so there's only one set of talks going on at a time, so you're either there or you're not basically. Like people will still skip talks then just because they don't have the mental capacity to, you know, sit there and listen to more talks because yeah. it's a you know like a full day of talks for several days in a row yeah i i also agree that most professors or like you know people at like higher stages um, um successful in their career they do tend to only go to things that are highly relevant for them and and use net um, conferences mostly to talk to the people they know because they think they're going to be the reviewers, you know, like they, they, you know, you're like in your own little world. It's a little sad. Uh, so the inspiring thing might not be what's most convenient for your career, which is to like really get to know the people in your immediate field because those are like the people that are going to read your paper and probably review. So this kind of, you know, sort of factioning, um, like forming smaller sub-communities within communities is, is something that I've always found kind of interesting when looking at the landscape of a given field. And one thing that like 
I've always had kind of a sense of, and it has always struck me as somewhat weird, is when there are like two factions doing like the exact same thing scientifically, but like using like slightly different language and mostly not overlapping. Oh my God, I experienced that like... <laughs> it's terrifying when you realize that there's a whole other sub-network of researchers doing something relevant, but they all cite each other. And so, like, so the, within that, you, you can, like, not escape that little loop of citations. You could yeah. like, look at all the papers that they all cite and never realize that there's a whole other group that's doing the same thing of having this little network of citations. And, like, an example of where this happens within the fields that we're familiar with, like, I mean, there might be a click in psychology where, like, there are hundreds of researchers all focused on a topic and then there are a bunch of neuroscientists focused on the exact same topic that's exactly what happened to me <laughs> yeah and another another one though it's not just like that direction like which is obvious i mean there are other ones where it's like people doing you know some kind of neuroscience and then maybe there's like a click in bioengineering or biomedical engineering doing the uh, same yeah, kind of thing another, yeah. so these happen in a few different areas you know i mean and i find this i find it a, a weird phenomenon because I mean, I, I guess it makes sense that it can happen, but I almost feel like the fact that it can persist is different than the fact that it can be initiated. It makes sense that there's like two people who start labs in very different areas and don't really cite each other because they just haven't stumbled upon each other's work. But it feels like as these networks get larger and you've got hundreds of researchers in each group, the fact that they form kind of closed off separate groups feels like there must be some sort of psychological mechanism at play where people like maybe people or junior people in these groups like stumble on the other group, but then they just like for career purposes or for like psychological convenience mm -hmm. purposes, don't engage with, like don't cite the other group as much because that's not like the the style of the, the papers that they see amongst the people who they work with. Yeah, um, the idea that it could be sustained seems like pretty straightforward to me because of all the cultural things that go into what research you come across and what you cite. You know, like if and let like if you found someone in the other clique who did something like truly great, you know, then it would probably break through this. But if they're doing something that's like, you know, roughly average for your clique and their clique and you bring it up to your PI or whatever, like it might just not go anywhere. It's just like, oh, okay, yeah, but you know, we could also just cite this other paper that we're more familiar with that kind of makes a similar point or something like that. And the fact that the language used can be different can mean that it's actually hard to find the other research. Yeah, I don't know. I, I just, yeah, I, I, I guess it's interesting when there are like restructuring of these fields. I mean, I think this happens like neural networks for a while was something that neuroscientists didn't really cite. And when deep networks became a thing a few years ago, right, it, it, it definitely shook up the citation networks like this, these kind of clicks. People who were outside of the like neural networks click wanted to start, I mean, needed to start citing that literature. And the literature of like of artificial what? neural of networks, like the thing, like all the, the kind of convolutional neural networks that have uh, that started this sort of trend. But and it, it just sort of I think when there's something undeniably awesome in one of these clicks. Yeah, that's when it breaks yeah, through. It breaks through, but then the whole thing's like everything kind of restructures. And more other clicks form. <laughs> and new clicks reform, but around different fault lines. Yeah. But but that that's reassuring that when something awesome happens, then there's restructuring. The problem would be like because of the clicks they ignore the awesome thing. That would be really yeah, bad. Yeah, there's probably so. things that are like just just below really awesome that get ignored that maybe it would be better if they didn't. You know, but the fact that things can break through when they're really good is 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 helpful.
it, I mean, I think it's, it's a more complicated thing. I mean, there are many kind of partial non quite like I don't think paradigm is the right way to think about it but there are like many like these these sort of social networks where people are working on similar problems thinking about them it's not so much necessarily that they have a an operating paradigm that they're using scientifically so much as just like a kind of cultural milieu of people who they interact with yes people yeah I mean I agree that part of the social structure of how academia works reinforces this because if you think about how you get tenure you get tenure by getting a big part of tenure is not just publishing it's there's depending on the institution you need up to 20 letters of recommendation written by senior people I don't even know field. 20 people <laughs> <laughs> like period not even neuroscientists <laughs> Um, well, it has the conferences and, you know, like, you know, getting to know the cliques that are relevant to your work. So it's not, you wouldn't go to the other group because, you know, the, they're not the people that have to write your letters. So part of the part of perhaps part of the problem is how academia works. It enforces, it kind of reinforces you to stay on your, your lane and like to, you know, to look up the pyramid within yeah, I no, don't, maybe. Yeah, that's an and idea. I'm also yeah. surprised by the impact of geography. Like sometimes these clicks are like if you put them on a map, it'd be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And I don't know if that's like people are traveling to universities nearby them, and you know they're more likely to give a talk there, and then like a you know a little network starts that way, or if there is some kind of cultural difference in how the science is done that actually makes the research slightly different. But yeah, I mean, I mean, some of this definitely is I think explainable by like. If you work, if you're in a certain region of the country for your PhD, you might want to live there afterwards, maybe. And so, like, la like areas, geographic areas, get populated by descendants of certain labs. Yeah, that's true. This really is just like like straight up evolutionary theory or something. I feel like it's becoming like very like basic. You know, people migrated and then <laughs> reproduced. <laughs> so, a question I will pose to you guys is, well, I guess Nancy kind of answered this already with the gut-brain thing, but have you ever kind of um, seen a talk or stumbled on something that you didn't think was going to be that related to your work, but then really impacted it? So actually impacted the work. Though, yeah, the actually impacted the work. So I guess the gut-brain thing didn't for you. Yeah, the, the brain, the brain gut uh, talk just made me aware because it happened so that, you know, anxiety-like behavior was changed by the microbiome. Uh, and the god, but let me see one that actually so, impacted. I, I mean, I would say I don't know if things necessarily. I mean, I don't think the things necessarily have like an immediate impact on your research. But I think talks can have a, a more long-lasting. Like if they if they inspire you or add new perspective, it might affect like the next project you select. Yeah, that's sort of fair. indirectly, it's like yes. Well, I'm working on something and I like what I'm working on and I don't really want to change it. And it takes me four more months to finish what I'm currently working on. But the next thing I do might be informed by something. Because I, I, you, you, you're usually maybe doing multiple projects at the same time or at least thinking about multiple projects or kind of mentally thinking of like a cue of, oh, here would be another cool idea. I'll come back to this in a few months when I have more bandwidth. Yeah, I have and, like a messy text document of all my fragmented ideas of projects I could work on. <laughs> That's where I put it. If I talk. And so, you know, it, it gets into some sort of like noisy cue where you think like, okay, maybe I'll return to this idea. And I think it probably affects what you do next. Maybe the people who have faster turnaround, I mean, I, th I think this is kind of uh, like obvious, but, uh, you know, you, you, maybe if, if, 
if you work on projects that have shorter lifespans, either because they, like, I mean, experimental work, right, is going to be notoriously long timescale, right? You might have to plan an experiment far in advance and then do it for months. Whereas, you know, if, if you do a computer simulation of something, you might be able to have turnaround that's faster. So it's, it's, it's presumably the case that, like, you see these effects, you see the effect of inspiration or perspective in a talk like more rapidly in fields that have shorter project lifetimes. I mean, that's kind of obvious. I don't, I don't really think that that's super insightful. Yeah, um, I agree that it depends. That's true. Like, so for, I do remember being um, inspired by when I was at Columbia in grad school, David Anderson came to give a talk and that definitely ignited me thinking about studying social behaviors afterwards. It wasn't the only thing, but it, it, that was the beginning. Um, and that's what I'm attempting to do now. So yeah, but that was really long term. It's like we're talking like three years down the road because that was the next time I could switch. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, interesting. So. Yeah, obviously, if it's a very big switch, you can't implement it immediately. Though I did like a fairly sizable switch, but it was computational work, so it was easier. So I started using deep neural networks as a model of the visual system because um, a postdoc presented like an overview of um, advances in deep learning. Like this was shortly after um, there were big advances in computer vision with deep learning. And I was like, oh man, this is like, this is like the visual system. Like it's working now. So I should pay attention to that. And then I started doing research on it. it obviously it's easier because I was like a young grad student and I was supposed to be, you know, deciding what I wanted to work on. Um, so then you were but, in an impressionable state. Yes. Yes, precisely. <laughs> Was it a lab meeting? I think it was technically a class lecture, but it was a, a class where people just presented papers. What about you, Josh? Have you seen something that influenced your work? I mean, like, I think this, my answer would be like, yes. I mean, of course, I've seen many things that influence my work, but, uh, but like not, I, I, I mean, nothing's coming to mind. Like, I, I think it is this kind of ongoing, like I'm currently doing a project and I hear a I hear someone else think of something and it gets put into my queue. I mean, I, the, my, my sort of dumb and cop-out answer is like every project I've done is definitely influenced in like it yeah, was, was course, determined obviously. in response to yeah. like talks that I'd heard. Um, like I've never picked a project where I just thought like, hey, this is a project that I should do without any attachment to like any other, like it's like a, yeah, like every yeah. You didn't invent like a field of research. Yeah, obviously. right. So it's like... <laughs> but yeah, I do feel like there are times. It's interesting because you can get into the mode where you're trying to finish something and you will not attend a single thing that's outside of what's immediately relevant to you. Like you can get so focused, like honestly, to the point where like I'll only read a paper and I'll only go to a talk if I think there will be something that will turn into a citation in the paper that I'm writing. Like, <laughs> this is the only thing that matters right now. <laughs> and I think but it's it's good to be able to have that flexibility where you can go into that mode, because that is kind of what's necessary to really get stuff done. You can't be in the high level, you know, I'm taking it all in space all the time and be getting stuff done. I don't think. Maybe some people can, and then they're better at science than me. It doesn't work for me. This year, I even I might not even go to a conference. I've been going to conferences every year since since I started grad school. Um, and this year, I'm like, I just need to focus on getting these experiments to work well. So I can't. 
uh, I can't, I can't, I won't even go to seminars downstairs <laughs> un- unless they're like super relevant. Might be, I might be exaggerating too much, so I, I might have to find some balance, but uh, that's where I am right now in this immediate moment. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's important to do that to yourself sometimes because there are maybe like an infinite, an, an infinite number of things that could be potentially relevant for your work, and it could be that like all of them would be fun to pursue if you had the time. And so you can really, I don't know, I get some anxiety sometimes if I see a paper come out and it's relevant to something I'm doing. Because like, oh God, like I need to I need to read all of that and like know how it relates to what I do. Um, and so at some point, just practically speaking, you have to shut it down and just be like, you know what? I know enough. I've incorporated enough. It's time to move on. And to do that, you have to just tell yourself to not listen to stuff that's happening for a bit. Yeah, just for a little bit. Yeah, it is. It is. I do feel like there are just phases. Like there's phases where I'm only doing things directly relevant to what I want to do. And then there's phases that I go through that are reading phases where I'll just spend like most of my time just catching up on stuff that I've bookmarked, uh, you know, when I was in my don't look at anything phase. (laughs) I guess maybe last question, we'll start wrapping it up. But do you guys have any maybe tips or just descriptions of how you keep up with the literature? Do you subscribe to tables of contents? Do you, uh, what do you do? Do you just wait for someone to come to your university and give a talk? (laughs) So um, lately, I, you know, I'm relatively new to Twitter. Uh, Maybe I've had the account for a year, but I think that's the main place where I don't, I'm not going to say I read all the papers because there's so many papers that are tweeted, but that's where at least where I might read the titles and abstracts and be like, oh, okay, this, this came out. Um, there's that. I do get the emails of the table of contents of J of Neuroscience and Neuron. And sometimes that's how I found out about your paper, Grace, because oh. I get the table of contents. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's cool. So, it is cool yeah. when you know people and you just stumble upon their papers. Like, yeah, it, like through, it's totally normal. Through normal dissemination means. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, it was so exciting to see a, a, a name I know. Um, uh, yeah, so that Twitter sometimes leads me to, I, depending on my state, it's like, oh my God, too many papers are coming out. Or it's like, oh, cool. Click. Yeah. And I read at least the abstract. Yeah. Um, and then my lab has a, my lab is pretty big and we have a slack and people just throw papers there mm. and that's pretty useful. I go there and I, there's usually something yeah. that I could read. So I definitely think like within whatever kind of subgroup you're in, like wherever you work, like people, you'll hear about papers from the people, you know, people who are saying like, this is relevant. I know you're working on this and they'll, they'll send it to you. Um, and that I think can be a lot or a little depending on exactly your work environment. For me right now, that, that ends up being like an enormous number of papers. But also, um, I, you know, I subscribe to keywords and things like this on uh, like Google Scholar and, and Google Alerts have, uh, have various ways where you can basically get notifications by author. Like you can pick certain people um, and you can pick certain keywords that it'll, it'll send you digests for. So you can get like daily or weekly emails that give you all of the papers that have had this keyword in it or something like that, which can be kind of long and you skim them. And I mean, and the thing that I didn't really, it, it makes sense. And I, it only started happening when I started writing papers, right? You can't do this until you've written papers. 
But when you've written papers on a few topics that interest you, you start getting like if you if you have like for example a Google Scholar profile, you'll start you you can get alerts for like everything that cites you, or even like yeah like networks like anything that cites papers that you cited, basically or like you, and and this kind of stuff ends up being extremely that's like to me that's like the most informative because it's like oh well I've written a, I've written like one paper on this topic and then so, suddenly I can start getting fairly personalized feeling emails for like all of the stuff that is kind of related to that. Um, and so I, I actually think the Google Scholar system does a pretty good job with that. But the point is like publish stuff in an area that you want to know more about and then you'll get these yeah, it's nice not, it's personal. Not gonna, that's not good advice. No, I'm not, I'm not saying like that's not, it's not so much advice as it is like. It's a I, thing you found. It's a thing it I found and I think it probably is the way many, I mean, I maybe, I don't, I, I, I imagine once people are definitely in a field like these kinds of means, like anyone who you read, check out the titles of any paper that cites any of your papers, obviously. And for like people who are actually in fields, like that, that can end up being a very large number of sure. things to check up on. Yeah, I do the Google Scholar alerts for certain authors and keywords. Um, I also have some tables of contents, subscriptions, um, and Twitter is a big one for sure. I also am... Like, I'm on mailing lists for places that I'm not physically at anymore, and I just choose to stay on them to see yeah. who, the speakers who show up. Because, <laughs> you know, the, the people that get invited to talk at uh, research centers that do research you're interested in is obviously a good list of people. Um, and then you also usually get, like, an abstract of what they're going to talk about, and it could be stuff that they haven't published yet. So that's a, a weird informal way of, of seeing uh, what people are up to. That's pretty clever. Checking out this, the the speakers who's getting invited. Yeah, I think that's a great. Yeah, actually, I, I also I also am on lists for places that I'm not currently at. <laughs> that is quite uh, quite informative. Mm-hmm. Okay. Any last thoughts? I mean, I, I guess, and I, I think this is reflected in our discussion. Is it's like, you know, I think we all got into science because it's we find it exciting, and it's weird for there to be the most enthusiasm amongst us maybe when we're having a conversation about like stuff that isn't what we do um but i think that's just because we find that like while very exciting and the i mean i i was thinking about this like when we were studying this conversation it's or, or what would be the difference between something you would want to work on and something you would find interesting and i think that there's a huge gap right like the, I mentioned earlier, like the Game of Thrones computer graphics animation stuff. I have no desire to work in uh, computer animation. Um, but at the same time, I find it like extremely exciting to hear about. And I think that's because we're all people in the world and there are many things that we encounter and we want to learn about. And I think that's just sort of curiosity and, and excitement. There are things that I am much more enthusiastic about actually spending my personal effort on. And I think that it's it's nice for there to be a distinction. It can be, you can be excited about hearing things or learning about things the same way you would about like seeing a cool play or going to see some live music or whatever. Like you can just enjoy consuming science that is distant from what, from what you're doing in an enthusiastic, you know, curiosity driven way. But not have it even bleed through to things you, you, you would consider doing yourself. I mean, I, I would like to think, and I think it is true, I'm kind of more excited about the problems that I work on most of the time than the things that I hear going on in other fields. That doesn't really diminish either. 
All right. Yeah, I agree. Thank you for having me, guys. Thanks for joining us, Nancy. Till next time. Hey, if you're still listening to this, you must really like us. So how about you go to iTunes or Stitcher and rate the podcast? Give us some feedback. You can also go to our website, unsupervisedthinkingpodcast.blogspot.com. You can comment on different episodes, or you could give us ideas for new topics you want to hear about. We would love to hear from you. Thanks. (laughs) 